0: Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native culture, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And I hope you'll do me a favor. Feel free to like and share these episodes. I so appreciate it. Yakuki. Big news y'all! One of my favorite Choctaw authors, Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer, has a writing course called Fiction Writing American Indians. Now this course will show you how to discover the insight you need to write quality authentic stories. You'll also learn practical approaches to researching native cultures, and get answers to hard questions. I'll be taking the same course, and I invite you to take it with me. Just go to AmericanIndians.FictionCourses.com. But don't forget to use the code CHOCTALK, that's C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K, when you go to checkout to get $30 off. Yes, let's do this. Welcome back to Native Chalk Talk, where Dr. Meadows and I are talking about his book, The First Code Talkers, Native American Communicators of World War I. Today we'll continue our discussion about the Choctaws and their contributions to code talking. Dr. Meadows, we discussed in episode one that you had set out to accomplish a few things while you were researching about the code talkers and it's obvious you reached some of these goals as we talked through them in episode one. But we still have a few more of those objectives to cover, including what were the actual military accomplishments of Joseph Oklahoma, the Choctaw infantryman long reputed to be the most decorated Oklahoma soldier of World War I, Was code talking actually classified as secret after the war? And were code talkers sworn to secrecy regarding their service? And we'll go into detail about Joseph Oklahoma, by the way, later on. But first, let's talk about that quest to discover were code talkers actually sworn to secrecy? Now, this may shock you listeners. It certainly shocked me. I had always heard and believed that the code talkers were sworn to secrecy about their communications during the war, but au contraire, mon frère, you would say otherwise, right, Dr. Meadows?
1: Yeah, it's one of the most widespread uh, beliefs, um, both in academic circles, even in the Choctaw Nation, and and just in the public in general. Um, but we we've got more than concrete proof. Um, the first thing that that there was no secrecy associated with this. So the thing we have to remember is that, okay, this was simply a development and experiment in the field to solve an existing problem when it came up. There was no standard training for this. There was no standard uh, program or or army uh, design for this, et cetera. It was something that was tried very late in the war, it worked, and then as soon as the war was over, everyone was, was happy to go on. Now, the way that we know that there was no secrecy included in this time is that uh, very shortly after the war, Uh, Even in as early as uh, January of uh, 1919, accounts begin to be written about the use of the Choctaw and other Code Talkers in there. And uh, we'll see that uh, uh, one of these accounts that is collected is uh, uh, by Colonel Bloor. They're actually uh, actually their immediate uh, commander of the regimental commander. Um, And it gets published in France first in February, it's later published in the US in March of 1919, and then from there, there are just uh, literally a few dozen um, newspaper articles, speeches, um, other references, as well as the officers even writing accounts about the use of the Choctaw uh, in their own memoirs, which are published immediately after the war. And and these accounts go they go all the way from uh, up to like two star general the division commander of the thirty six actually, um, General Smith uh, made a public speech about using it and again it's it's always in the light of uh, kind of uh, smiling or tongue in cheek look what we pulled on the Germans you know <laughs> right. but there's a, there's a lot of publication on it and it and it just continues even after the war.
0: Wow, I mean, my brain is still. Trying to comprehend this. Listeners, do you feel the same way? We've always just thought, hey, they were sworn to secrecy, they couldn't talk about it. And now that I'm looking at the newspapers after the Choctaws came back, the fact that they were code talking was all over the papers. How how did we miss this for so many years?
1: The only thing I can think is I, I think it's been most heavily influenced later. Uh, decades later, when the emphasis on the secrecy associated with the Navajo code talkers in World War Two, I think, is that become mm-hmm. better known and see it's not going to be declassified till 68, the Navajo. Uh, so I think there's just the assumption, well, they had some some attempts to secrete it. So it must have been all of them. And, right. And, and then the other thing I think is also when you say code, the next word should be secret because. The idea of a code can't work if everybody knows about it, right? Right. <laughs> so I think it's just a, a general assumption um, that people have made through time. And, and it's just got repeated and repeated and repeated. But nobody's ever went back and looked uh, to see what was being published at the time. And, of course, articles from 1919 to, say, into the 30s, that's way beyond the the public's memory now, you know.
0: Yes, exactly. Wow, it's interesting. And it was,
1: you know, it was considered to be the war to end all war. So I don't necessarily think there was a plan uh, to use it again. The army did note it, you know, took down some records, et cetera. But um, I don't think for all intents and purposes, people thought we'd ever need this idea again.
0: Exactly. Isn't that funny? Well, hmm, little did we know. There were over 20 public sources that discussed the Choctaw code talkers between 1919 and 1922 in France and the U.S. A May 1919 article in the AEF newspaper Stars and Stripes was titled, Yank Indian was heap big help in winning the war and containing a section of the use of the Choctaw language. Now that we've gotten over the initial shock about this long-held misconception Let's delve in to learn more about these heroic men. But first I'd like to pay homage to my grandpa. Um, That is who we called my Papa Shaf. It's always hard for me to even say grandpa because um, I always say Papa Shaf. He was not a code talker but he was a fighter pilot in the Korean war. This is him back here. If you're on YouTube and watching this video um, you can see him in his uh, fighter pilot suit holding his helmet. Um, I'm wearing his shirt today in honor of him. He gave this to me in person when I was in college and it was very special to me. Although I was still dumb when I was in college because I tore the patch off that said his last name on it which was Schaffner. So I'm kind of mad at myself about that, but this is his shirt. And I wore it with pride then and even now sometimes. Um, he also gave me a pair of his pants that I've never been able to fit in, even when I was skinny. Um, he was a very small Choctaw man, um, and they would have the pants would have also been way too short on me as well. So I'm just very proud of that. And to all our servicemen and women, I would like to give a big shout out. So moving on, how many Code Talkers that were Choctaw were actually involved in World War One?
1: Uh, so the, the number is actually, and, and we're going to qualify this, there's kind of two two different numbers we'll get and I'll explain why. <clears throat> the actual number used at Forest Firm uh, was eight men, eight Choctaws and everything. Um, and that would be October 26th to the 28th of uh, 1918. Now, as soon as that, uh, as soon as they were relieved from that assignment, they were marched back a few days to a rest area. Um, an area called Lupi les Petit and uh, there was then an assignment that came down uh, to then increase the number of men to 18 um, enlisted men and then three non-commissioned officers so a total of 21. Now we don't know if the non-commissioned officers were Choctaw or if they were simply officers to put over groups of, say six men in each, each, uh, uh, officer. And this was directed by, uh, Lieutenant, uh, Temple Black, who was Cheyenne from Oklahoma, ah. um, and also had connections to, to Montana. And so, uh, we commonly get the number around 18 or 19 frequently given to us. And, uh, for a long time, um, uh, I think that puzzled everybody as well as me. We just assumed, okay, 19 were used. Well, Uh, When I uncovered some of those letters um, that that Sarah and Aaron helped me locate that Mrs. uh, uh, Mrs. Witter, Captain Horner's daughter, still had, uh, he made it very explicitly clear only eight men were used. And he remembers the names of five of them. And these are the five that are in the famous picture that's so uh, often reproduced. Uh, The other three, this letter was in 1942, I believe. The other three, he knew they were talked about, but he said, I just cannot recall their names. So we we know five of the original eight. Um, And then over the years, particularly since the 80s, when the Choctaw Nation began reaching out to people and if you have any information, other families have come forward and submitted names uh, of their ancestors. And I think what some of those names are, those are probably uh, men that were in the training session, the week-long training session right before the war ended. Because that, okay. that number is almost uh, perfect in most estimates and things. And no one really clarified well when they talked to some of these people you know did you actually use it in combat or just you know and and a lot of times the references are just we used our language to fool the germans well Hmm. that could be taken more than one way you know you it could infer you're actually in the group or it could just be we chalk talk you know i don't think we're ever going to really Uh, know who the other three is. Uh, There's some speculation about it and things like that, but we do know five of them absolutely um, identified by Captain Horner.
0: And that's another thing where I think a lot of us have gotten those numbers wrong over the years as well, maybe thinking there were more or less than there actually were. But it seems like over time, a lot of research is being done. Who knows what else you'll uncover as the years go on. Isn't it the case that all the Choctaws were honorably discharged?
1: Yes, as far as I know. um, We have several, I don't know that we have all, but we have several discharge papers. And uh, it appears that everyone, there was no problems in that area. And several of them comment um, um, in their discharge papers, they have the comments written in, uh, character excellent, uh, remarks, no AWOL, no absences, et cetera. So it seems like there were no issues uh, there at all
0: amazing so there was one soldier who unfortunately wasn't mentioned among the original names tell us about him
1: uh that would be benjamin colbert jr um his father was in the spanish-american war if i recall right and he wasn't on the original list as being being a code talker uh but he does come up he's mentioned several times uh since the mid-1990s and uh, one of the sources, perhaps the first that brought that out was the uh, Choctaw tribal historian, uh, Charlie Jones uh, suggested or, or uh, put forth his name as believing that he had been a code talker and everything. Uh, some of Colbert's ancestors have also uh, reported that. I even had a, a, a descendant in a class of mine one time and he mentioned that he had heard you know, heard this and everything. Wow. Uh, So but there are some there are some logistical problems. So one of the things we we want to do is what sources can we do to check things, to clarify or to narrow down possibilities? So uh, his records show that he actually departed for Europe uh, from New York very late, actually on August 31st of 1918. Um, So the 36 is going into combat very, very shortly right after this, just a matter of days in September. Um, So it makes his association with the 142nd Infantry and his involvement with the Code Talkers, uh, logistically, it's a little questionable. Could he Mm -hmm. have got there and actually uh, uh, been with the actual unit that did that and everything? Um, He was eventually, his name was eventually removed from the list by the Choctaw Nation. Uh, for a lack of documentation. And then later, the uh, Department of Defense um, added it back on and everything, hmm. re- reentered it and everything of that nature. Um, so that's, you know, we do not know a whole lot about Benjamin Colbert Jr., but we do have a few references
0: he got did end up getting some recognition which is great he was recognized with the silver medal through the code talker recognition act of 2008 and while his name was not on the official 1986 gray granite memorial at the choctaw capital in tushkahoma he was added to the black granite choctaw code talker monument that was erected in 2018 so good to see that he did get some recognition now let's learn more about these honorable co-talkers and their stories. Let's start with Victor Brown.
1: Uh, Victor Brown, we know, uh, we know he received a Purple Heart. Uh, he was wounded uh, from mustard gas, so in a, in a gas attack and everything. Um, he suffered a broken nose at one point and um, head injuries, and this is, you know, quite quite possibly from um, uh, artillery or something of that nature. Hmm. And uh, it notes on his citation that he received it from President Woodrow Wilson. So it seemed, you know, it had been uh, officially uh, documented and everything. Um, Later, his daughter, Brown's daughter, uh, Napanee Brown Kaufman, um, made a description. She said, uh, I remember his stories of speaking in Choctaw over the telephone lines. He was pleased to have served in France and to have seen Paris And he was proud of fooling the Germans with the Choctaw language and everything. So I'm sure that is that that is a family uh, nugget in their in their history.
0: I love that. Something to be so proud of, too. So another co-talker was Corporal Lewis Gooding. What can you tell us about him?
1: Um, Lewis was born in 1887 in Indian Territory. Um, He's later listed as being from the community of of, uh, Valiant. Uh, Oklahoma. Uh, he has an interesting background that that could make him a, a very likely uh, uh, person here because uh, prior to entering service, he worked as an electrician uh, for the Valiant Light and Power Company. Um, so that would have automatically, he would have come forward with some skills about wiring and communications and those kind of things uh, already a little bit. Um, unfortunately, we didn't we didn't get any material directly from him or, or any preserve that we know. However, his wife, uh, Carrie Miller Gooding, um, in 1977, uh, in an interview reported what her husband had told her about using Choctaw in World War I. Uh, and I quote, he was in a field signal battalion. Um, they was in the service. Uh, mm-hmm. They was in the field. He and his partner were in the signal corps. Uh, they were out in the field. And his partner went a haystack and they were sending messages back uh, because they used the continental code and they had their instruments and all. Uh, And they were sending the messages back to the headquarters uh, when they discovered two enemy soldiers uh, that was copying their messages down as fast as they were sending them. Uh, Now, we're not real clear how they how they detected that or knew that. Uh, They were sending their messages back to headquarters. They discovered that these enemies were copying their messages down. So he started sending the message in the Choctaw Indian language. uh, And he started sending the messages in that. Um, They got so excited, the enemy soldiers trying to figure that out, that he and his buddy got up, uh, got their instruments up, and they slipped out. They got away. So it's possible they were in a location where they could overhear and that did happen sometimes lines could be close enough, or uh, soldiers could be close enough to hear the other ones on the other side so right. but we we don't have all the details, but this is an interesting um where it seems he picked up on the uh, on the um picked up that the Germans were clearly hearing it and recording it or reporting it, and so they decided to switch into Choctaw
0: so interesting, and I love that they were in a haystack,
1: yep. Yeah.
0: Got to do what you got to do. So Albert Billy was another one of our code talkers. Uh tell us about him.
1: Uh yeah, uh Albert Billy, uh he was caught during a gas attack um uh, without a mask. And so in those situations, um you're pretty well instructed to try to dig a little pocket in the ground and get your face down in that pocket as much as possible mm-hmm. to get oxygen out of the ground as you know as much as possible. Um uh, this is a an injury that he later reported uh led to his skin bleaching out and there is a, a technical term for that uh that type of uh of uh skin skin ailment or uh, change and everything um so he he did he dove to the ground he dug the small hole he tried to get what he could and everything he survived it but the effects of it uh stayed with him the rest of his life as as it did with many workers wow. oh uh, members and everything uh but photos of him also show that yes his skin was was uh, bleaching out if you would um and everything um he passed uh in 1959 so he lived well after the war and everything and so again we don't know we don't have direct um, information or interview with him uh, but we don't know if the gas caused that or if it's uh uh, uh, vertiligo, which I think is the actual uh, ailment that causes that sometimes, or uh-huh. whether he just simply uh, aggravated that condition and everything like that. Um, he didn't report the, um, um, you know, apparently it it may not have been too severe because he didn't report the incident or seek aid for it, and uh-huh. um, he reported no wounds or anything of that nature. So um, he was able to bear through it and just continue his duties.
0: Yeah. What a tough guy, you know? Not even reporting it. It's fine. I'm turning white, but it's okay. Yeah. How about Noel Johnson? What can you tell us about him?
1: Noel Johnson was one of the hardest uh, individuals to come up with much on him. Um, he was from Smithville, uh, Oklahoma, and everything. Um, another, you know, common belief, uh, even among his family members, was that they understood uh, for decades that he had uh, been killed and was buried in France. And so once we got to checking uh, rosters, uh, sailing and return rosters and and different records, uh, we discovered that his um, uh, post-war absence was basically got a hold of his death certificate and explained it. So uh, Noel survived the war, uh, but Contracted tuberculosis while overseas, while in Europe and everything. And so um, there's a September 1919. So he's coming back. Most of the uh, Choctaws, the rest of the 36 got back in, in, in easily in June and returned home in June and July. So a September 1919 roster has him listed as a, a tuberculosis patient at a US Army General Hospital and then uh a following record is that he died uh then on november uh 19th 1919 from uh pulmonary tuberculosis and um if i recall right i think he was at one hospital in north carolina it was the, initially where he was mm-hmm. uh, he was at um and then he ends up being um uh, buried uh very close to cove arkansas which is just right across the line from oklahoma so I don't know why he uh, was not buried in Oklahoma, um, mm-hmm. but he's very close to the Oklahoma line in eastern Oklahoma. And, it, you know, what, what, is, what is sad, uh, he was a very handsome young man, if you, you see his picture. And of all, all the chalk talk, code talkers survived the war, but he was the first to pass, you know, and actually never got to come home fully. He never got to get back to Oklahoma.
0: And now let's talk about Joseph Oklahombe, who was referred to as Oklahoma's greatest hero of World War I, yet he was misunderstood for many decades. Why was he misunderstood?
1: Um, there, there were several reasons. The, the The main reason is the publicity that came back, uh, that started, and it mostly came back, he came back with a citation. He did earn a citation for, uh, for Bravery in Battle. And as we'll get into a minute, the original uh, citation was, of course, in French because his units were assigned under the French government. Um, So he was given a Croix de Guerre and a Silver Service um, Silver Citation Star. Well, when he came back with this citation, what it was was an extract from the full citation. The citation was actually given to 24 men for a joint action they made each man an individual extract translated into English. And the problem became is that the pronouns um, did not transfer really accurately or the same way into the English. So in the English version, it, it uses pronouns like he or him instead of they. And so if you read the English version, it's saying what occurred, but it's saying that he did it, which leads you to believe it's an individual action. Uh, when in reality, when you see the original, there are 24 names on it, and it is a, it's a it's a small group, it's 24 men, but it's actually a joint action um, that they did together, and they all received the same award for it. Now, as we'll get into in a moment, Oklahoma had an especially... Um important part in this action and and yeah. really a, just you know, my hat's off a tremendously brave action, individual action as part of this. But when people, newspaper people saw that citation and read it, they begin running stories um that no one questioned really for almost eighty years. um, and the stories when you read them carefully and cautiously, you begin to realize, the timeline doesn't add up and one person could not do all these things by themselves over four days.
0: McCartan Gazette newspaper in Idabel, Oklahoma ran an article called Joseph Oklahoma, cited by General Pataine and given Qua de Guerre for conspicuous bravery. And then what does the article state after that? And this is the important part that kind of gets turned around.
1: Right. So the, literally, the newspaper article recounts, and I quote, uh, he rushed on machine gun nests, captured 171 prisoners. He stormed a strongly held position containing more than 50 machine guns and a number of trench mortars, uh, turned the captured guns on the enemy and held said position for four days in spite of a constant barrage of large projectiles and of gas shells crossed no man's land many times to get information concerning the enemy and to assist his wounded comrades. Uh, Oklahoma had uh, killed and captured more Germans than any other man except uh, Alvin York of Tennessee.
0: Wow. And so it's the inference that he single-handedly took 171 prisoners. That's that's the problem,
1: correct? Right. And And when you start looking at this, just objectively, um okay if he made multiple trips across and he's by himself and he went across no man's land on these trips those 171 germans are not going to wait on him they would have right (laughs)
0: like that would be
1: impossible right and i doubt uh there are cases of, of of multiple group you know groups surrendering to an individual and going in but i doubt that 171 would they would have quickly rushed him and uh and 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 sought their freedom you know that way yeah so it just doesn't you know uh but again this is a um this is an excerpt out of a much bigger document so you know it's kind of like in in the news where they show you only part of the news clip and it leads you to believe something but when you see the whole um the whole thing unfold it's a totally different context you know so it's nothing against oklahoma he didn't write the citation um, but it's how it was interpreted <laughs> when it came back.
0: Well, yeah, absolutely. And and on that same vein, I'd like to point out that this information is not to discredit Oklahoma, Bee, but is rather to ensure correct information is being reported. He was a hero, no doubt, but we'll do him more honor by telling his story factually. So another quick mention about him, and then I want to come back to that, was he was reported to have received numerous medals including the congressional medal of honor the distinguished service cross and the silver star but in the records in the national archives in oklahoma's own service record you mentioned in your book it doesn't show those decorations correct
1: right right um so yeah i think a lot of people have confused uh the names of certain awards and medals over time. And they have also changed as we'll get into here for just a moment. But he, he received the, the French Croix de Guerre, which is the cross of war, war cross, uh, and then what's called a silver citation star. So there is a series of small pins um, that go on uh, larger awards. And they indic- what they indicate is uh, on one level, Uh, degree of risk and bravery of the accomplishment involved, but also at what level uh, it was reported at, whether it was something was reported at the regimental level, at the Mm. divisional level, at the army level, et cetera, and everything. And so um, he had the French Croix de Guerre and the the Silver Star uh, citation. Now, um, later on, um, he would have received the uh, American Victory Medal, Mm-hmm. and uh, two, uh, two clasps, uh, which show campaign bars basically on it and everything. Now, okay. here's the problems. A lot of these awards, some of these awards were actually not issued until after the troops were already back home in 1919. And so it does not seem that Oklahoma actually received his silver citation star. It's, it's, uh, it's recorded, but it's, he, he didn't seem to get it. And so for a long time, um, people would look at, you see different photographs of him, some in civilian clothes, some in his uniform. The Mm -hmm. de air is very easily uh, recognizable as a French war. And then you see this small pin on it. Well, I kept looking at that picture (laughs) and I just said, there's something wrong here. That's too big for a silver citation star. And Mm -hmm. so I was going back down to Oklahoma City soon and I contacted them and, and I had to pull out Oklahoma's uniform again. And uh, what I suspected was was true, uh, what he had was basically the, the victory pin that you get after the war's over. And so it's similar to the, uh, uh, what they call the honorable discharge pin in World War II. They, the nickname is the ruptured duck, but okay. it, is a, it is a slightly, it is a star shaped design And uh, it has uh, lettering on it and everything, but it's much bigger than a silver citation star, which is just a little bitty star and everything. Interesting. um, What I would infer from this is that he probably did not get all his awards actually given to him, um, or it's possible the star fell off, because this is a very, very small little pin. Uh, okay single bracket you know so that's possible but a lot of a lot of soldiers did not get all their awards because they were already back home they were hard to contact and uh oh
0: that
1: that type of, of of thing now another thing that came up is that a lot of people confuse you keep hearing he received a silver star well the silver star did not actually come into existence the silver star that we have today in the military until 1932 and what it did was it was kind of the modern form of what the, the silver citation star was during World War I. So we've okay. had, we have had a little bit of evolution of new awards made and new types of medals and things of that nature. So he was awarded that later on, or his son was. Um, okay. Me when he received his medals and in the Choctaw Museum at, at Tushka Homa, you will see a, sil- a modern silver star medal uh, with the ribbon in in his case. Uh, but originally, so it was just a silver silver citation pen.
0: Yeah, so interesting. So many mysteries that I don't even know that folks realized that there were mysteries around some of this for a long time. Like the McCurtain Gazette, when they wrote that article and misinterpreted the French language, again, they inferred that he single-handedly took 171 prisoners. And this kind of led to over 80 years of over 111 similar articles spreading misinformation and his accomplishment applauded in banquets and in veterans groups. You write in your book that the best firsthand account of Oklahoma's actions is a daily Oklahoman feature written by R.G. Miller, who interviewed Oklahoma in his hometown of Wright City in 1937. Um, After Miller found oklahombe at the local drugstore oklahombe suggested that they take a ride go out in the woods where we can have a good visit and they visited at a spot along the little river and miller asked oklahombe how he captured such a large number of germans oklahombe described his capturing the germans Just out in the field as a scout, about like this, lots of trees, guns popping everywhere, some big cannons. I see German's heads sticking out of ground about as far from here to the river. They no see me. I sneak up closer, lot of barbed wire in the way. In little while, two, three more Germans came out of hole in the ground. They set up machine gun. Then they go back in hole. I get closer. Two Germans come back out. I shoot them. Then I bounce over to the hole and turn machine gun on them down in hole. They no come out except right by me. Every time German showed his head, I pop it. That's all. Miller says, good work. How long did you hold them that way? Oklahombe says, four days. Were you alone at the time? Yeah, nobody come. No food, no water, all that time. Battle go on all time. Well, when help did come, how many Germans did they find in the hole? I believe 171 and about 50 machine guns down in there. Did the army give you any medals and things for your bravery? Yes, lots of them. They in Oklahoma City, my gun and uniform too. So this confuses me because it sounds like he's also stating that he single-handedly captured 171 Germans.
1: Yeah, and I think um, what I did was I went back because the uh, 36 was only in two major actions. Uh, there was cleanup in between those two. I went back and looked at the situation and also the date. The date that he received it is the is the the, the pinpoint. Um, mm-hmm. Associated before Forest Firm, it was associated right. with St. Etienne. And so this is where uh, elements of the 36 are coming down off a ridge. Uh, they're going to go across an area and they're actually going to storm the town of St. Etienne. And so the Germans have all kinds of Uh, trenches fortifications things of that nature there are um, there are stone uh, walls and things like that that they can use for protection and so looking at the uh, also the account of the award uh, what it indicates is that um, he with a group of 23 other individuals um, were advancing on this position they moved quicker and further than the line on either side of them And so what they found themselves was they had created this little bitty peninsula that stuck out and they were, they were in a situation where the other sides couldn't catch up to them. And so they had two decisions to make one retreat, which they would have probably suffered a lot of casualties being shot in the back and everything, or can they take the position in front of them and hold it? until the the line and the other people can get up there and and get them and everything.
0: We'll be back after this quick break. Are you in the medical field looking for your next opportunity? Listeners, I'm proud to introduce you to Native American veteran-owned staffing company, Worldwide Medical Staffing. Owner and CEO Jackson Weaver is a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma and is a service-connected disabled veteran where he and his team staff for commercial healthcare and government entities, such as the Department of Defense, Department of Energy, and DHS, and specialize in staffing Indian Health and VA hospitals nationwide. Isn't it nice to know that our veterans are being cared for by staff who have been handpicked by a veteran who's been in the staffing business for 17 years? Healthcare job seekers, check out these open jobs on www.medical.com. If you're seeking temporary, long-term, or permanent placement of physicians, advanced practice, registered nurses, and more, check out www.medical.com. And Diaco Key to our medical professionals and to those who have served our country.
1: And so what they seem to do then, and this is where that interview um Is So important. Um, That interview from 1937 is probably compared comparing it with the actual uh, 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 battle records is probably the best source we have to really understand what he did. But Mm. what, what he's describing is they're coming up on a German position, and it would not it would not be unusual for him to be the lead man to be the scout ahead of this smaller body of men, because that was very common. A lot of native men were used in that position. So he's describing two Germans uh, popping their head up out of the ground, okay? Um, And so what we're talking about is they are running into uh, a trench, but most likely a dugout, what's called a dugout. And so the Germans had these, some of them were two to three stories beneath the ground, uh, excavated, reinforced, living quarters. Uh, but they're not, they're not finished like a wooden house and everything. They're basically earth, earthen caverns. Um, oh, they, had, okay. they had rooms with bunks down there to sleep on. They had a minimal amount of electricity. They had mess areas where they could cook and eat. So they could be completely dry, fairly warm, um, very insulated down there. And um, dugouts were typically large enough to house an entire company of men, which would be around 215 or so. Wow. And so what it sounds like is that he, as the scout, two men were coming up to set up a uh, machine gun. He waited until they got it completely set up and then he shot them, took the spot and then turned the gun on the hole. And then anytime somebody tried to come out of it, he cut them down.
0: Whack-a-mole. And,
1: yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, And so then uh, I think the four days is, it's the, it's the group of 24 of them. It it took them a while to get relieved. And there was a lot of counteraction and things of that nature. That's what the citation is explaining is that this is what they did together. So,
0: yeah, it's like all of that happened. It's just that it wasn't just him. It was, you know, a lot of them. So that makes a whole lot more sense to me now.
1: yeah, and he, yeah, but he has such a key role in this, and it would, it would make sense since, you know, being in a scouting, a forward position, he was initially alone by himself when he shot those two Germans and took that position. And yeah. then the time, the rest of the group caught up um, because uh, that, that's according to the write-up and everything. Uh, but all 24 men for holding that position uh, were given the exact same uh, citation and everything.
0: And that's fantastic. I mean, that's that's pretty good strategy right there, whether they meant to do it or not. I don't know, but that's it worked, obviously. Twenty four versus one hundred and seventy one is that's fantastic. Yeah. And um, what he
1: did was he caught them. He caught them in the dugout. And so mm-hmm. anytime they come out, a dugout usually only has, you know, uh, an, an entrance, you know. Uh, but anytime they come out, it was very easy to control that position with that machine gun.
0: So do you think Oklahoma knew about the incorrect reporting about the single handed thing in World War One? Uh,
1: it, it, it's it's hard to say. Uh, you, you can speculate, speculate a lot of different ways that kind of comes down to the question of what was his proficiency in English? You know, mm-hmm. and you'll see some accounts that say that he was uh, he was illiterate in in English and everything. Um However, there's another account, family account, that they remember him, um, you know, sitting and, and reading and singing songs out of the Choctaw hymnal. Uh, now, I don't know if that was you know printed in English letters or another form, et cetera. But um, clearly, by 1937, he's able to carry on a pretty fluid conversation. It's it's a little broken English, but it's pretty clear what he's talking about. Um, right. And he would have he would have uh, definitely. Uh, if not learned, improved his English while in the military service, just having to work with, with all these uh, other non-natives. Uh, because Oklahoma was not in Company E at the 142nd. He was in the 141st. Mm. And so still a lot of natives in there, but there was a lot of non-natives as well. And so that that's really a hard thing to say. Um, um, you know, I just don't, I, I really don't know. But I would have think he would have understood the gist of why everyone was so excited and how they ran with this story and everything. Right,
0: it's like, uh, what are you gonna do? How do you rein that in? You know? but I,
1: I don't. I also, you know, I, I can't speak for his reading level either. I, you know, I just yeah. You know.
0: So he may or may not have ever known, yeah. and either way, he was still hero. Oh, yeah. um, but oh, yeah. still, so many misconceptions. The more I read your book, the more I was like, oh, there's another one. Um, for instance where Oklahoma and that detachment garnered their award.
1: Yeah, there is uh one of the biggest um things that come out, there is a um an article, I believe it was a uh, Barry Plunkett, I think was his name, that did. And um I don't know, you know, I I always like to give people the benefit of the doubt. I don't know if this is something that somebody told Plunkett and he accepted as a factual report or whether there's some artistic license or not. But there's this one account from 1987 that says that uh, Oklahoma was coming along. He came across a cemetery and he observed it. Uh, this whole German company was inside the cemetery eating lunch. Uh, they had their guns stacked up, et cetera. So he killed a machine gunner that, that uh, had a machine gun near the entrance to the cemetery. And then he simply cut loose on all the Germans in the cemetery. And mm. that report says that he kills around 79 and then takes the exact number, 171 prisoner. Um, now, again, I checked, the, I checked the battle accounts. There is a cemetery in uh, St. Etienne. It's not where Oklahoma is in, in his sector. It's not his sector. And also the fighting in the cemetery was massive troops it became hand to hand and there's a lot more people involved so it's not it just isn't uh it doesn't match up with the with the battle uh records and everything of that nature so i don't know again you know benefit of the doubt i don't know if somebody read something about saint etienne and inferred he well he it had to be that part of it etc but uh there were positions outside of the town there was a cemetery there were certain uh, walls along roads and there was also open territory and houses and things you know but eventually the uh the 36th you know eventually pushed them out of that town and took it and everything but his uh his uh, area is um is not the uh, not the cemetery area where that fighting occurred
0: right it's it's so weird all these wires getting crossed and as we know even now with social media especially news can definitely get out of control and it was happening even back then before social media so
1: (laughs) that that report that's the only reference to that version of that account I've ever seen and and I tried to track uh track the author down but I never could I never couldn't uh, make contact you know
0: Hmm. there were even more errors in the reporting regarding his being gassed correct
1: uh, yes, I don't believe. Uh, let's see here. I I don't believe he reports that he was ever wounded or, or gassed or anything of that nature. Yeah, you know? yeah, and he never sought treatment or anything. Not, not that I ran across any of his records and everything, um, so he was fortunate in in that aspect. You know.
0: Yeah. Okay, and then wasn't there something about his walking to enlist in military service that was also stated incorrectly as well?
1: Yes, there is a um, uh, there is a reference that he walked so far to enlist and everything. However, his his uh, records show that he was drafted and Oklahoma was a little bit older. You know, he wasn't uh, he'd already been out of school for a while and everything. Um, so um, it also, yeah, it shows that he was drafted. And so he likely um because I don't believe very many people had automobiles at that time, you know, I'm sure he walked to report for that and everything. So that may be, again, just a simple assumption or, or an error. Yeah. um, And there is, there is one really interesting bit, um, on his actual record, um, where it says occupation, it lists farmer, but in parentheses, it says in jail. Oh, what? And so I don't know if if he happened to be had some issue going on. And there's a lot of times where they if somebody would enlist, they would just waive that and, and let them mm. go. In the service, right. Know? And it could have been something really minor. I don't know. But that is something I noticed on his actual card. But it it suggests that he might have been you know being held at the at the county there or something uh, at that time.
0: What were some of the accurate facts about Joseph Oklahombe, considering we've talked about a lot of the misinformation? Let's hear about some actual facts. Uh,
1: some of the things that we do know about uh, Mr. Joseph Oklahombe, uh, he was born May 1st of 1895. So if you think about it, he would have been uh, 22, around 22 or uh, uh, about the time that he uh, entered service or so, 22 to 23, so he's a little bit older and everything. Um, he entered at Camp Bowie at, at Texas later and everything. Um, after the basic training, um, there is a uh, an anecdote where uh, an officer asks Oklahoma how he's liking the army. And he replies, too much salute, not enough shoot, you know, kind of thing. He was and, ready for it. Um, all of his um, all of his statements that I noticed over the years, um, they imply some degree of of broken English. Now, Whether this is stereotyping on the reporter, I don't honestly know, you know, Uh, but it was also not that uncommon. There were there were Choctaws of all different degrees of fluency in English and even Mm -hmm. some that were dismissed because of a lack of English, you know, at the time and everything. Um, So we know he served at St. Etienne. We know he served at at Forest Firm and everything of that nature. there is another anecdote um, from uh, Ben Carterby um, in which uh, he looked up at a certain point and saw Oklahoma uh, coming in at a distance with two German prisoners um, and then looked away. And then when he arrived, he noticed that he only had one prisoner with him. And so um, he was asked, where's the other prisoner Oklahoma um uh, of course, they report the stoic Choctaw, right, uh, replied simply, I killed him. Uh, before the officer could catch his breath, Oklahoma asked, want me to go back and kill him some more. And so we don't know if one of those soldiers uh, maybe tried to escape or, or attempted right. something. It seems well, that bully. he dispatched uh, one of them and everything. Uh, again, we don't know so much about his literacy. That That is really, there's some things that suggest it. There's some things that don't suggest it. Um, and everything and then that um, in 1937 he was asked by uh, by R.G. Miller who did that that interview with him um, you can read and write can't you Uh, and he responds no no read and write Um, Uh. never did go to school he's asked no plenty schools to go when I was a boy but I I didn't go Uh, my people didn't care about that Uh, some sources state that Oklahoma attended Armstrong Academy prior to his military service uh, which would suggest he had some degree of fluency in English. Um, but I believe that school burned, if I recall. And hmm. I, I think uh, at one point there was a fire, and I I think there's a, a fairly, that was one thing I was not able to follow up on to see if he had actually attended uh, that school, you know, those records. And okay, everything. right. Um, Carterby's daughter reported that Carterby had to translate for Oklahoma Um, but again, we don't know, okay, is this in basic training? Is this in, you know, so we're, we're talking a good year and a half of, of, uh, from the time the war starts until the end of it, you know, and everything Mm, like that. mm -hmm. Um, But it's clear, you know, by the time we do have some small interviews and statements by him later, of course, well after the war, it's clear that he learned to speak a fair amount of English and, and, and understood it and everything like that. And uh, so this ties into one problem is that there are assertions that he was a code talker, um, but he's not in the right unit for it, as far as we can tell. And also, if he was um, if he was uh, um, not this good at English, he would have not been selected to do it, uh, because that oh. was one of the things they wanted. people uh, When the order came down, they wanted people who were fluent in Choctaw, which he was, but who also were extremely fluent in English. Okay. And so he would have not been able to write down messages and <clears throat> do certain aspects had he actually been in a co-talking situation. So what I concluded was that, um, and then uh, Captain Horner, in his 1942 letter says that Oklahoma specifically had nothing to do with the code talking. He was a great soldier, but had nothing to do with the code talking whatsoever. So what I can infer is that if he had any role, it's possible it was in the training group just a few days before the war ended.
0: Again, it's something that we kind of have to soak in because it's something that we have believed for so many years, that he was an active code talker, truly utilizing it during the war so tell us about the story about the panther cry
1: oh yeah um there is a there is a a kind of an anecdote or account about uh, tobias fraser laughing um at his uh imitation or cry of a panther and everything and so uh there is kind of a a practical joke that okahomee pulls and uh again you got to realize the the germans did have they did have stereotypes about Native Americans. They were somewhat intimidated by them. Uh, now in this particular incident I'm gonna talk about, I don't know that there was any way he could, they could tell he was native because it was his night, but it's what he did that really shocked him. Um, so he crept up close to a uh, position and then in, in the dark gave this, this panther cry or call. And um, the Germans uh, uh, apparently were extremely scared by it. Uh, probably the proximity did not realizing somebody was that close to them, but also the nature of the sound. It's not just someone speaking or, you know, uh, right or, or whatever. It's a call they're not used to hearing and everything like that. Um, and so it's it said that the Germans were on the telephone and that other people even on the line heard that that call with who, but again, that that account uh, we don't have a whole lot of context uh, for it. Um, now, Judy Allen did, I believe, she did write a book mm-hmm. about that story, and uh, it tells tells a little bit more about it and everything, and it's uh, illustrated as well. You know, but there there are actually several references. Otis Leader makes a reference about this. I know we're going to talk about him later. Um, about um, sometimes these Native soldiers, they would give a quote unquote war cry or hoop. Uh, when they uh, engaged the Germans, and it, it was very unnerving to them, and um, Peter talks about yeah. the same thing, and again, it's it's playing into some of those uh, unfamiliarity with Native Americans, but also stereotypes, because the, the Germans mm-hmm. were, they'd seen Wild West shows, they'd read all the Carl May novels, and so they had all these, um, you know, uh, I hate to say it, but kind of savage Indian imagery or stereotypes that were in their in their popular uh, knowledge you know um and so it, it played on that i'm sure you know and uh, oh
0: i bet i bet and and it would be intimidating and good for them that they were intimidated what happened to Oklahoma after the
1: war um we don't know much in the in the immediate post-war years now we do know that he was really being heralded for that extract of that that award that he got, the extract of that action. Um, But by the 30s, he starts to show up a lot more in the newspapers, and we're getting some glimpses of what's going on there. Um, We're finding out that financially, he's very struggling after the war. Um, A lot of times, he is jobless. He's searching uh, lumber. So, or I'm sorry, he's searching for labor. And he's taking a lot of odd jobs, just wherever he can find things, helping people farm, harvest, just any kind of work he can get. Um, In the winter of 32 and 33, um, he applies to the Veterans Bureau for relief. So there's beginning to be a little more formalized programs about veterans benefits and some things like that. Um, The next year, in 33, he begins working on a Native American relief project um, near his home for $12 a month. And of course, that doesn't seem like much to us today, but that's quite a bit of money back at this uh, time and everything. And um, there are some other mentions. Um, um, In 1932, um, according to a 1932 interview, a reporter from an Eastern magazine had come to Wright Wright City to interview him uh, shortly after the war, but he left town. And so we don't know if he left town intentionally because he didn't want to be bothered or he just happened to be be out of town. Uh, But it's clear that people have received some of these newspaper articles that are being run over and over and over, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: And then of course, a little bit later than this, uh, there is, uh, he is approached by some representatives from Hollywood about the possibility of making a, a film, making a feature film and everything. And so this occurs in 1935 and about his life and his military service and everything. Um, and there's a little bit of conflicting reports about this, but most of it indicates he declined it um, because it required him to go to California for an extended period. And he kept saying he just didn't wasn't interested in leaving Oklahoma. And uh, now his wife, Agnes, uh, reports that he, he adamantly refused all officer uh, offers uh various reasons why um sometimes saying you know the war was not for fun it was not to be you know taken lightly um and he didn't want to be a party to making movies about those those kind of activities um in another incident he reports that he needed to stay home and uh, catch suckers which is a type of fish of course uh in nearby horsehead creek and uh one uh, one report um um, if it's if it's accurate, suggest a little bit of humor. He says he'll go to California if they could relocate Horsehead Creek there so he could continue his fishing, you know. So he, he loves might,
0: his home.
1: Yeah, loves his home and, and very connected to the land. And he might have been having a little a little bit of fun and sarcasm with him, you know, um, in humor. So, you know, he, he just keeps saying it's too far from home. I, you know, I can't go and everything like that. And uh, there's a there's an article also in the uh, Indian Leader that year, 1935, uh, that's that comes out of Haskell Institute, and um, it says that he was actually offered uh, $500 to act in the picture and everything of that nature. Wow. And so on on one hand, this is kind of reflecting um, his modesty, his values. He is you know concerned about what's local and his life and not necessarily running off for just the the sake of of uh, money and everything of that nature um but there are there are differing accounts a little bit later you know yeah yeah like in
0: 1937 there was an interview with RG Miller where Oklahoma B. stated i was all ready to go but he never did send me money and railroad ticket Although Miller also reports neighbors told us Joe declined to take the movie job. So who knows? Um, so tell us more about life after the war for Oklahoma.
1: Um, there, there are some things that, uh, happened. Um, one, there is a request, um, or at least a suggestion, um, to put him on a postage stamp and everything. And of course, postage stamps have a lot of designs that change pretty frequently and everything. Um, uh, to my knowledge, uh, that did not happen and everything.
0: Oh, that would have been so cool. What a collector's item.
1: Yes. Oh, absolutely. And then, um, in January of 37 his uh, Indian relief job had ended and he's then 42 years of age and everything. And again, he's finding himself basically kind of in a state of impoverishment. Um, I don't recall that he lost his home or land or anything of that nature, Uh, but he was again, struggling to find work on a, on a local level. And uh, he's also struggling with uh, alcohol at this time. And of course, that's, this is a, an era where for veterans, uh, you know, they're not going to diagnose PTSD until the 1980s, you know? Hmm. So they used to refer to it as shell shock or something of that nature, but there's a lot of people. And then of course, um the poverty and the stress of that may be adding to this but he's he's having some struggles and everything and um his son jonah reported that he eventually found some work at a uh, sawmill uh which was for two dollars a day and everything so that's going to pay uh, again doesn't seem like much money to us but that's going to pay a lot more than twelve dollars a month that he was uh making and everything of that nature and um this this uh, this ran into another series of of, of newspaper articles, and so um, there's an article that comes out. Our number one war hero wants a job, in which he described Oklahoma's a, uh, dilemmas as well as his extensive list of manual labor skills and everything. And so the the uh, the article did lead to several job officers. He offers he was getting uh, solicited for different offers and things. And so he ended up taking a job um, at the Wright City Lumber Company and Mm. everything of that nature. And um, uh, there was a uh, follow-up article that year, the Third District American Legion Convention at Atoka, um, they asked the Oklahoma congregation um, to care for Oklahoma Oklahoma during the rest of his life. Um, now I do not know that that actually occurred, you know, to any Hmm. great degree, you know.
0: Wow. I mean, it's sad what he was going through, but it seems there were some people who admired him and wanted to support him. I know in the book, you state that in 1940, two individuals on a fishing trip picked up a native American man walking along the Kaimichi mountain to visit his wife in the hospital at Talahina. Along the way, they discovered that it was Oklahombe, then working at a sawmill for $2.56 for a full day's work. When asked what battles he fought in, he said, just fight them like hell all the time, adding, I kill them all, but Captain came down, hold up his hand and say, no, shoot them, Joe, war all over. In his own way, he told us it was hard to understand how a man go to war and fight hard, kills lots of the enemy, be sly enough to get wounded himself, and now the government not help him, and that others go to war, not do much, get wounded, and then the government give them a pension. Going several miles out of their way, they dropped him at the hospital, and then tell us what happened on April thirteenth, 1960.
1: Um, So Mr. Okahombi was walking home, um, walking from his home east of Wright City um, into town, and along the shoulder of the the road, uh, he was facing the traffic that was approaching him and everything. Um, Around 325 in the afternoon, um, approximately a half mile east of Wright City, on the Wright City Broken Bow Road, um, he was unfortunately struck by a panel truck. Um, it was driven by a gentleman named Kenneth Craig Basil, um, who was working for the Walsh Lumpkin Wholesale Drug Company uh, out of Texarkana, uh, Texas. So he was on his uh, route and everything. Um, the truck, uh, after hitting Oklahoma, uh, left the left the road and everything, and turned over. Um, so it, it it we don't know if the individual was inattentive or, or exactly what happened. Um, unfortunately the impact was hard enough. It was going at enough speed. It threw Oklahoma approximately 70 feet from where he had been walking wow. and, um, his neck, both legs and, uh, were, were broken and other injuries. And so he was, uh, uh he was killed almost immediately, uh, oh. from the, from what, you know, from the impact and everything. And um, so he was 65 years of age at that time and uh, um, no signs that, you know, he had any other major health problems at the time and everything. Basil was uh, was charged with manslaughter uh, in the first degree. He was held on bond for $2,500 and uh, had a preliminary hearing on, on May 1st. And it was decided, investigated, decided it was an accident. It was not intentional or anything of that nature. So the charges were dropped uh, on him. And so um, services then were uh, held for Okahombie and Luxokla Presbyterian Church near Wright City. And then he was uh, eventually buried in uh, Yasakal Cemetery with full military honors. Uh, It included a detachment, uh, an escort, um, a bugler, an honor guard from Fort Sill, and then also several of his World War I comrades in the area also uh, attended his service.
0: Such a sad way for this hero who survived World War I to have spent his final day, but his memories and honor do live on, in 1992, the United States military reissued Oklahoma B's medals to his son, Jonah, upon his request. The reissued medals were displayed at the 45th Infantry Museum in Oklahoma City. Jonah donated the medals to the Choctaw Nation Museum at Tushkohoma, Oklahoma, where they are on display today. And I've seen them. It's so cool to see that. Listeners, if you haven't been to that museum in Tushkohoma, I highly recommend you do so. Where else can people see more on Oklahoma B?
1: Um. Well, um, I probably have the longest in in this book um, about a yeah. page section on Oklahoma and uh, to my knowledge that's probably the most extensive uh, written account and it, it's probably not all by any means but uh, that would be one source. Um, also, there, there are a lot of material on the, on the web. Now, again, you must be cautious with some of it, but there is a lot of different things. Uh, There's schools that's done history day projects on Oklahoma and things of that nature, and, and those are posted and everything. Um, so he is still uh, very much remembered in Oklahoma military history, uh, by all means.
0: As Dr. Meadows has said, be sure to check out the book where there's so much information about where you can see more. Oklahoma's original uniform, wool garrison cap, steel helmet, mess kit, socks, and original Croix de Guerre are in the collection of the Oklahoma History Center in Oklahoma City. And there's also a monument honoring Oklahoma in his hometown of Wright City, Oklahoma. Now, as of today, despite requests, the Congressional Medal of Honor hasn't quite been awarded to him yet, correct?
1: Uh, yes, it's it's under review. Um, there is a project going on in uh, Kansas in which approximately 200 uh, Native American service uh, people from a variety of wars, um, their records are being uh, examined and each one's being considered for an upgrade in the awards that they uh, received and oklahoma is one of those uh, gentlemen um he has been nominated for uh being upgraded to the medal of honor the highest award that, that we have as a country and um, i was happy to submit a letter in support of that because uh, that action of, of taking that position and holding and everything is is very much above and beyond
0: indeed indeed i'm glad you're doing that Oklahoma and our other brave men and women in the service are to be commended for their bravery and for defending our country cheers to them listeners we've come to the end of this episode but stay tuned for the next one where we'll talk more about the choctaw code talkers and learn about a particularly famous code talker otis leader so excited so thanks dr meadows thank you thanks for listening to native choctaw be sure to join our community on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yucko okay. Ki, Thank you, my friends.